A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciple plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to them, to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Uh, Father, uh, we just read um, about how uh, in a worship service Jesus got up and uh, asked a question, a series of questions. What, what are we supposed to do on the Sabbath? Do we save life? Do we destroy it? And then he and then he restored a man to health, and um, apparently that's what you want to do in worship services. That's what you want to do all the time. Um, Father, we need your restoration. Uh, we need it more than we're aware of. And so, um, Father, will you now, through Jesus, do uh, perform the restoring work that we each of us need and restore us beyond what we're aware of in terms of our need and bring us to a deeper sense of our awareness of your of our need and of your grace make jesus's mercy big thank you in jesus name amen please be seated and uh, if you would please uh turn back to that second reading. Um, you'll notice in both of the readings uh, today, um, there's a kind of a, a bit of a theme. Uh, we'll pick it up a little, and it's the theme of um, the religious leaders uh, not being good. Ba the first reading talks about um, shepherds who destroy God's people and how God's going to bring a righteous shepherd, and that's, that's ultimately Jesus. And Something similar happens in the second reading, and so we're going to be talk, talking about that. But one way into it is this. Um, let me point out an uh, objection that a lot of people have that really inhibits a lot of people from considering Jesus or considering Christianity. Um, and it's, it's this uh, objection. Um, uh, religion is, can be terribly toxic. And uh, religion can sometimes ruin people's lives. And sometimes religion can even kill people. And if all of that is true, then um, why bother with it, right? 
Now, you can identify with that objection, and you've certainly heard it, but many of us feel it in one way or another. Um, why do I bring it up? Well, um, I bring it up for a few different reasons, partially because all of us will need to wrestle with that question one way or another, but mainly I bring it up because Jesus brings it up in our reading. Look at the second reading, skip to the end. Remember the scene. Jesus is in a synagogue, and maybe it looked a little bit like this room now. And next to Jesus is a man whose hand is impaired one way or another. And you can feel the tension in the room because people are looking at Jesus, and people know that Jesus is famous for healing people, and they want to know if he's going to heal somebody on the Sabbath day because that was controversial. And then he does it. He says, stretch out your hand. The man stretches out his hand and everybody can see. Nobody can deny that his hand is restored. And then what is it that you think is going to happen at that moment? They break out the champagne. The crowd goes wild. And they spend the rest of the day celebrating, right? No, look at it. Verse 11 and some of the religious leaders will, were filled with fury, and they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Now, friends, that is a very sinister uh, verse. Why? The word fury me there means that they were out of their minds with anger. And the discussion they start there is the beginning of the plot that will eventually lead to the killing of Jesus. So here's, here's the thing, friends. If anybody has a right to object against toxic religion, it's Jesus. Because he lived under its fury and it eventually killed him. But just as importantly as that... One of the things that you see throughout Jesus' ministry is that Jesus intentionally identifies and unmasks and opposes toxic religion wherever he finds it. And that's what he's doing in this reading. But not only does Jesus oppose toxic religion, he gives us the alternative. And so here's what we need to do today. We're going to wrestle with this issue of Sabbath. And part of what the reason we're going to talk about Sabbath is because Sabbath is a little bit of a case study to help us understand the difference between the toxic religion that eventually tries to and succeeds in killing Jesus and the, uh, the, the proper, healthy, life-giving alternative that Jesus offers. Sabbath is a case study for it. And we need to understand the difference between toxic religion and the alternative that Jesus offers, partially because to the extent you are a religious person, you need to be very careful because we will all of us be tempted into the toxicity of false religion. And it, we need to be aware of that because if we fall into it, we will end up ruining not only ourselves but others. But on the other hand, even if you're here and you're like, I'm not even sure I'm a religious person, you need to be aware of that too for at least two reasons. One, you need to protect yourself from toxicity toxic, evil religion. And on the other hand, the alternative that Jesus gives us for the last 2,000 years in every generation in widely divergent cultures and in widely divergent uh, uh, strata of each society, 
Jesus's alternative to toxic religion has been transforming people's lives and restoring what's broken in people's lives, and it would be an awful shame for you to miss it. So, the case study is Sabbath. There's going to be four things about Sabbath. First of all, what's its meaning? How is it corrupted? How is it restored? And how shall we practice it? First of all, what's the meaning of Sabbath? Remember, this is a case study. Um, look at the reading, and we've got two stories about Jesus and the Sabbath. Um, in case you're not familiar, the Sabbath is uh, the, in this context, is the sixth day of the week. We call it Saturday. And in the scriptures, it's a day of rest and worship and uh, no work. And our reading is all about the Sabbath, but there's something odd in these stories. Um, and here's what's odd. We hear a lot about the fact that these two scenes happen on the Sabbath, but there's almost no resting in these stories. Do you notice that? And particularly focusing on the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees in these stories, they, they argue and they accuse, and they plot against Jesus. But what you don't see them doing is resting or worshiping or giving thanks to God. And that's a little indication that something has gone badly wrong. And to explain what it is that's gone badly wrong, we need to fill in a backstory. And the backstory goes right back to the very beginning of the Bible, the first pages. Think with me. Uh, when the Bible opens up, it's the book of Genesis, um, famously, God creates the world in six days. Very productive week. And on the seventh day, the Bible says that God rests. He rests from all his, his work. Now, when God rests on the seventh day from his work, he's not resting for the same reason you and I would want to rest on a Saturday. Um, it's not, I mean, it was a big week, fair? Yeah, but it's not. But at the end of the week, it's not like God's like exhausted and beat and burnt out, okay? It's not a work-life balance thing. God rests on the seventh day, not because he's tired, but the text says because his work was so perfectly finished. Everybody say finished. His work was finished, and therefore it was time for him to enjoy his finished work. So, for instance, um, uh, this next week, some of us uh, in this room will, will, will cook a Thanksgiving feast. And at some point, the, cooking, the time for cooking will be over, and you will sit down, hopefully, at the table and enjoy what you've cooked. Now, you will sit down at the table not just because you're tired. You may be tired after cooking all that. But you will also sit down at the table because the point of the feast and the point of the cooking is to sit down and enjoy what has been prepared. And there's something like that in Genesis. God's Sabbath on the seventh day was God uh, uh, enjoying God's finished work. However, God's Sabbath is also a win window into uh, human flourishing. Why do I say that? Well, in Genesis, humanity is designed from the very beginning uh, to flourish as we rest on God's work and as we enjoy God's work. Now, it's important to know this. Um, work is a good thing and is a good thing in Genesis from the very beginning. 
So in Genesis, before evil ever comes into the picture, when everything's still good, humanity has meaningful work to do. Everyone say, work is good. And God, from the very beginning, wants us to be industrious and creative and productive at work. However, and this is really important, human work was never meant to be load-bearing for our ultimate flourishing. Our human work was meant to be animated as we trust and rest and rely on God's finished work and God's competence. As we rested on God's competence, that was to fill our work with a new significance and a new creativity and a new freedom. Now, this is counterintuitive, but I, I think we can get a little bit of an insight. If you've ever worked for a really good boss, imagine you're working for a great chief executive. Now, if you have high level of confidence in your chief executive, does that make you want to be lazy? No, if you have a high level, uh, high confidence in, your, in the competence of your chief executive, that will often free you, empower you to work uh, under that person's leadership. And there's a little similar vision in the beginning of the Bible, only much, much bigger. God rested in God's perfectly finished work, and then humanity rested in God's perfectly finished work, and that security animated humans to go out and work with great job satisfaction. Now, here's what this means for us. The first meaning of Sabbath is that humanity only flourishes when we rest in the competence of another. Humanity only flourishes more specifically when we rest in the competence of God. All right, so keep that meaning in your mind, and now we need to talk about the corruption of Sabbath. Because like I said before, in our story, the Pharisees are not really resting in God's work. What they're doing is they're evaluating other people, specifically the actions of Jesus and his followers. Put differently, they're trying to control others. And in a deep way, they're kind of trying to take control of the Sabbath. And we've got to tease out what it is that's going on here. And to do that, there's more to the backstory. Because if you look at the big story of the Bible, um, the Bible tells a story about how humanity has consistently rejected God's vision of Sabbath. All through the Bible, um, uh, after that initial good beginning, we don't really want to rest in God's Sabbath. We don't want to rest in the competency of God. We want to rebel. Uh, we want to declare our autonomy from God. We want to rely on our own competence. And underneath that is a deep desire to be in control of our own lives, the control of the little sphere of reality that I call me. Now, that may sound lovely, and it might even sound like liberty, until you feel its effects. Because it ends up that relying on our own competence and rejecting the competence of God it ends up ruining everything, and in particular, it ruins work and religion. How does it ruin both work and religion? Well, start with work. It ruins work because it turns work into this laborious, 
toil that demands everything but never really delivers the satisfaction and significance and rest that it promises. Let me read you something. This is from a, uh, a, a philosopher uh, prophet 800 years before Jesus. It's the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. And this is written by somebody who was very, very successful in life. I hated all the toil with which I toiled under the sun. What has man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This is vanity. Cheery. So much for job satisfaction. Now, that sounds really gloomy, doesn't it? But it's not a fantasy. In fact, it captures something that all of us experience at some level. Work is important to all of us, and God's designed it to be important to all of us. It's a good gift from God. But work easily becomes toxic, partially because in work, we, deep down, we often refuse to rest in the competency of God. We insist on relying on our own self. We grasp control from God, and we were never designed to bear that weight. Now, that twists our relationship with work, but the same dynamic or something similar happens in our religion. Now, go back to the first scene in our reading. It's a Sabbath day. Jesus and his disciples, they're hungry. They're walking through a beautiful grain field, and Jesus' followers uh, start snacking off the grain uh, that's in this field. Now, this was arguably allowed within the broad uh, regulations of Old Testament law. Uh, you were not supposed to harvest on the Sabbath, and that was defined by using a tool, some, like, a, like a sickle. You weren't allowed to do that, but you were allowed to eat. And you were not supposed to harvest somebody else's field with a sickle, but you were allowed to kind of snack on somebody else's field as you were walking through. And that was actually part of the uh, social safety net of the day. It was meant to be an act of mercy to people who are hungry. Because in the Old Testament, uh, mercy to those who are hungry takes precedence over uh, ritual precision. And that's part of the point Jesus is making when he refers to uh, David in verse 4. But I'm not going to talk much about that. You can ask me about it later. But here's what you need to see. The Pharisees added additional rec uh, regulations in order to tighten up some of the loopholes of the Old Testament's law. Undoubtedly, some of their intentions were good. Um, th they ended up being kind of like um, uh, compliance auditors. But there was a toxic imp implication here, too. Because the Pharisees leveraged, or at least some of them, leveraged religious regulation in a kind of deep bid for control. And this is part of the origin of at least part of toxic religion. And it's very subtle, so you need to, you need to pay attention here. Outwardly, it looks like they were following God. 
but inwardly, they're not resting in the competence of another. They're not inwardly resting in the competence of God. They're relying on their own competence, and they're relying on their own strict observance. They were leveraging religion in a bid to kind of control God. They would never have admitted it or maybe even seen it within themselves, but that's what's happening underneath the, the surface. Another example, uh, if you're a bank, uh, you want to keep the, you know, uh, the feds at bay, the regulators at bay, one of the ways, one of the, the best way to do that is, is to maintain really strict compliance, right? And that's a good thing. You keep them at bay by following all the rules. A religious person can often do the same thing with God, but it's not a good thing. Oftentimes in the religious heart, it, I begin to think if I can follow all the rules, and especially if I can add some extra credit on there, then I can feel like I'm in control and God has no right to transgress into my life. It's like I can keep God at bay. God, if I can keep all the rules, I can keep God at bay, I can control him, because he can't really engage my life without a warrant, and I deny him the warrant to get into my life by following all the rules really, really strictly and following a few extra just in case. Uh, Flannery O'Connor, uh, you may have heard this quote, wrote about one of her characters, and she said this, um, he had a deep wordless conviction that the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. Keep them at bay by complying so that I can remain in control. You avoid God by outwardly conforming to him, but deeply you're relying on your own competency. And when that happens, just like work becomes toil and twisted, religion becomes swollen with pride. And often you can tell you're swollen with pride and self-righteousness because anytime you start anything that threatens this religious control of your life just infuriates you like it did the Pharisees. And this explains why the Pharisees can witness a healing and they would have been just as surprised at a miraculous healing as you are. They can witness a healing and not rejoice. There's no joy in the restoration of this man's hand. They seethe with anger because their carefully crafted power grab is under threat. And that's why they want Jesus dead. Toxic religion is a rebellion, in, uh, is a rebellion against God, and it's every bit as deep and dangerous as complete irreligion. So, Emmanuel, let me ask you some questions. Think about yourself. And think about the way you relate to work, and think about the way you relate to religion. First, think about the way you re relate to work. Here's the question. To what extent is your career really about relying on your own competence so that you can have a great resume, so that people will admire you, and so that you will feel in control of your life? Or think about religion. Why is it that you do the religious things that you do? Is it, to what extent is it about relying on your own religious competence or moral competence or whatever, uh, achieving an impressive record uh, so that people will admire you and God 
will, so to speak, not be a threat. And in the end, you'll feel in control of your life. And the reality is, if you know yourself well, you'll know that all of us are on those paths to some extent. But we've got to see the danger of that path. It will corrupt us, and if we're not careful, we will become a threat to the people around us. So, Sabbath's meaning. Human life flourishes as we rest in the competence of God and not ourselves. Sabbath's corruption is when we rest in ourselves in a bid to gain control over our own lives. And it ruins the way we relate to work, it ruins the way we relate to religion, and it ultimately ruins our life and the lives of people around us. So thirdly, how is Sabbath restored? Well, that brings us back to Jesus. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus drops a bombshell. He says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means something like this. It's as if Jesus says, um, you guys have uh, stolen Sabbath for your own nefarious purposes. I'm stealing it back because it was mine by right from the beginning. Except he's not stealing. What he's doing is he's restoring. And in restoring Sabbath, he's getting ready to restore human flourishing. And you can see that in the healing. Look at verse 9. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. Now, focus on that last word, restored. It's a crucial word. It actually came up in our collect earlier in the, in the service. In the Old Testament, the word restored described how God would one day uh, fix all that is broken within Israel and within humanity. And the word restored indicates that this little healing is like an appetizer for a much bigger feast. The man's hand is, is shriveled and lifeless. The man's hand lacks all competency to function properly. And it's a vivid example, it's a vivid image of just the universal human condition. That hand can only be restored through the competency of another. It's a vivid example of the whole of the human condition. And that's when Jesus steps forward and shows us what it means that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He has the competency that this man's hand needs. And he has the competency that all of us need. This hand flourished through a restoration as he, in a sense, rested upon the competency of Christ alone. But that was just a rehearsal because we see at the end of the reading that that day a plot began to form uh, between the religious establishment and eventually also the secular political establishment. They worked together in order to try to neutralize Jesus, and eventually they killed him. And, and when they killed Jesus, they thought that their power grab had won, but they were wrong. Because when Jesus died, he cried out. Do you remember this? He cried out, it is finished. Why did he cry out, it is finished? Well, he wasn't saying, I'm finished. What he's saying, it wasn't a cry of despair. It was, a, it was a pronouncement. It was a, like an echo of Genesis. Just like 
uh, God had created everything and then rested in his finished perfect work. So on the cross, Jesus is working. But he's working not to create for the first time. He's working to recreate. And in Jesus' death, uh, the penalty of human sin is dealt with so that human life can be restored. And what that means for us is this. It means that Jesus died and rose again in order to call you and me to a new kind of Sabbath. It means that true flourishing for you and me happens only when we rest in the competency of Christ alone. And that is true religion. That alone is true religion. That is the healthy alternative to toxic religion that Jesus offers. To what extent do you rest not in yourself but in the competency of Christ? The answer to that question will determine everything about you. So what is Sabbath's meaning? We were designed to flourish resting in the competence of another. How is it corrupted? We try to rest on our own competence and it ruins work and it ruins religion. How is it restored? Jesus Christ takes Sabbath back by giving his life so that we can be restored and rest in the competency of someone glorious. So how do we practice it? Well, how do we practice Sabbath? A um, lot to say here, not going to say it. But I do want to point out two things, two practices that can uh, help us guard against toxic religion and also a toxic approach to work. Two practices. We need a Sabbathing day and we need a Sabbathized week. A Sabbathing day and a Sabbathized week. Um, do those words exist? They do now. Um, a Sabbathing day is it's what you expect. We need one day in seven where we fast from our normal work with the objective of reorienting ourselves towards resting in the competency of Christ alone. You've got to give intentional, uh, uh, intentional attention to resting in someone else, namely Jesus. And that's what worship is all about. Uh, Christians uh, set aside Sunday rather than Saturday because Sunday was the day Jesus rose from the dead. It's a sign. It's the day we commemorate the restoration of humanity. And, uh, and when we gather here for worship, we're not just ticking a box so that God will think highly of us and not bother us. Rather, we come together to say, uh, Jesus, I know I will flourish only when I rest in your competency alone. So this day I want to lay down all of my attempts to grab control of my life. And Jesus, I want to look back at your competency, and I want to remember now again how you achieved my restoration through your death and your resurrection. Here's my sin and all the ways I'm trying to grab control, and now will you renew me in your grace, and will you tether me to my sisters and brothers in the faith so that we can be allies resting in you together. But then we also need not only a Sabbathing day, we need a Sabbathized week. What does that mean? Well, remember, work during the week is not ultimate, but it is a gift. Work in the week is not supposed to be load-bearing for your significance and meaning in life, but it is a good, good thing. And so a Sabbathized week 
it means that we want to learn how to rest in Christ's competence for our ultimate meaning and significance and then go to work. And go to work with creativity and industry and productivity and joy because you're deeply secure in Christ's competence. You're deeply secure in Christ's ultimate work. In other words, resting in the competence of Christ needs to retrofit your professional life. And that's a big task. In fact, it takes a miracle. But the good thing is, Jesus really likes to restore hands and whole lives. And he wants to restore you, and he wants to restore you each day. He gave his life for it. Do you think he's going to say no when you ask? So surrender your work and surrender your religion. Surrender your competence and look at him and rest and rejoice because he loves to give you life today. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.